Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. On this month's episode, we talk about real estate investment trusts, the cost of living, the strike action happening over Christmas, and as the World Cup's on, we're going to briefly discuss the business of football. All of this and loads more in this episode. Welcome to this Christmas special, Chris. How are you getting on today? Very well indeed. Thank you very much, Ben. Looking forward to it. Great stuff. And what is uh, what is Christmas like in the uh, Stokes household? It, it's quite a sedate affair, really. Uh, not a huge amount of overindulgence, thank goodness, because I don't think my constitution could take it at my age. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're looking forward to a relaxed Christmas. And we'll be covering the same sort of stuff, covering three key stories and then looking at one slightly more out there, slightly more fun one um, at the end. But you can definitely feel that um, Christmas um, is in the air. It has got a, a lot colder. Also, the Christmas adverts have come out. Uh, Chris, have you seen the John Lewis ones and other similar similar adverts on TV? I, um, I actually, I, I don't know. What did you think? I thought the, um, I know it did get a little bit of uh, controversy, but um, I thought the John Lewis one was uh, particularly good again this year. Well, they do say that they're treading a, a fine line because mm. they realise that people haven't got much disposable income. So mm. they're, um, they're, they're having to market themselves with that in mind. So I think it's been quite tricky for them. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and I think that is something in in business responding to to customers and what they're facing at the at the moment. Like ultimately, um, maybe this Christmas isn't the year that everyone will be going out spending big bucks on lots of toys, lots of electronics, whatever it it, it might be. Um, and therefore, John Lewis, rather than showing off all of the things that they can uh, that you can you can buy, um, going for kind of a bit more of a, a wholehearted, sentimental message, which actually didn't. Show show off any of the any of the products you go to a john lewis i've got one in high wickham where i'm from and it's huge and it's got um probably tens of thousands of products in the in the store and yet um there wasn't really um anything any of those products uh displayed which is quite an interesting take from a from a marketer where you compare it to other adverts which are huge uh discount signs on uh on the products they've got um as well obviously john lewis go a slightly uh different take and have traditionally uh been there um as well um the other thing that um really shows that the year is coming to the end is on spotify i got the notification um yesterday about the wrapped segment that they do for all of their users chris are you a spotify user you listening to your music and podcasts on spotify i'm afraid to say i'm not not okay so basically um how to explain it at the end of each year spotify and it's absolutely genius because everyone posts their their own on social media but they give a review of your year of what you've listened to your most popular um, music artists most popular podcasts and this is why I mention it because I looked at mine um, yesterday and I was very delighted to see that um, I in the top three podcasts our podcast wasn't in there because I think it would be far too self-indulgent for me to be listening to my own voice however however and uh, 
maybe this is slightly uh, indulgent um, uh, as well, but it would be brilliant if anyone has got the Thinking Commercially podcast in their top three. If you could screenshot it, either post it on Instagram or whatever it might be and tag us in, or even just send us. If you don't want people to know that you've been listening to Thinking Commercially podcast, just send it across to us. My email address is ben at brightnetwork.co.uk. But yeah, if you have been loving the podcast, we're really interested uh, to see our, our listeners and hopefully maybe even one or two of you have put it in there or have it in their top three most listened to of the year um mine was uh the peter crouch uh podcast or that peter crouch podcast so uh which i think is actually the most listened to in the across the country um as well um chris i've massively digressed um are you ready to crack on with i am and i did admire that subtle piece of christmas marketing for us ben well done yeah exactly well i I, i've been seeing uh taylor swift has got a huge amount of christmas marketing um through the fact that pretty much everyone on my instagram um through the 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 stories have have taylor swift in their top five and quite often she's number one obviously she released an album um about uh about three or four weeks ago and i think it went to the most played most played ever or the most uh singles in the chart ever or something like that um in its first few weeks so it's hardly surprising um but hopefully there's a little bit of love out there for the uh thinking commercially podcast maybe as a close <laughs> second uh to what people have been listening to other than taylor swift right let's crack on with actually what we're meant to be talking about on this podcast so the first story that we are going to be covering this week is all about commercial property so this isn't the the houses and flats that you may in the future be buying this is the business space and i think in your head you ultimately think about big high-rise office blocks in in london but this can involve uh, warehouses stuff on industrial estates and everything um like that and specifically what we want to to cover about this is real estate investment trusts or reits as they are more commonly known because it's quite an interesting sort of i guess case study for commercial awareness and also something that maybe you don't really think about you might have started in the working world or done an internship and you might go into the office two three five days days a week and there is obviously a commercial transaction the person uh the 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 business is is leasing most likely possibly owning but leasing that business but that there are are companies that are investing either building or owning businesses and then taking money um from the rents that they can charge to customers which are usually um businesses however there have been various things happening over the last couple of years firstly the need for office space has been less due to the pandemic and since the pandemic as people have been better set up to work from home also more recently because it just costs more for these companies maybe the office block itself doesn't cost more but it takes you know a lot to heat an office now and all of the bills associated that is paid for largely by the company or if it's by the the person that owns the building those costs will get passed on to the companies that are in them and um, but also things like what happened recently with amazon amazon suggesting that they don't need to increase um, warehouse space and actually decrease it at certain times obviously that has an impact on the commercial property maybe outside of towns and outside of cities those big warehouses that you might see when you're driving along the motorway 
Chris, there's lots that I've talked about um, there, but I guess my starting point for you, what is a real estate investment trust and why is it important to understand in a business context? Well, the, these are quite interesting vehicles because uh, most big property owners, landlords, developers are now set up as REITs. And a REIT, a real estate investment trust, an investment trust, and, and we've talked about investment trusts before, they're, they're, they're a form of, of fund. They're called closed-ended because if you want to invest in the fund, you buy the shares on the stock exchange, and that share buying activity does not affect the investment trust itself. The, the managers of the investment trust don't have to sell any of their assets to meet redemptions to, to, to pay back people who want to sell their shares. Uh, and, and that's in contrast to ordinary investment funds, where if an investor wants to get out, they go to the fund manager who has to basically uh, pay them for their units. And that might mean that they've got to uh, sell an asset. Uh, and usually investors want to get out when markets are going down. So if the fund manager has to sell the asset, then usually uh, it's not a good time to sell it. So investment trusts are a really good vehicle for what are called illiquid investments, like property, like venture capital. Um, and they, they, they retain their status as REITs, uh, in order to get favorable tax treatment, if they pay out the bulk of, of their profit, of, of their profits. Um, so um, REIT is a very specialized vehicle, but you'd be quite surprised how much commercial properties is held through that type of vehicle these days. And what I was reading um, about this um, lately, obviously knowing that we'll cover it on the, on the podcast, um, reading uh, much more about it. A lot of these trusts what they hold is losing value um, and actually i think it was somewhere between four and five percent on average a lot of them re revalued um their holding why is this um, a major problem both for the investment trust but maybe the wider economy as well well and and this is why i particularly wanted to talk about this because uh, as a fairly innumerate lawyer by by profession i've always struggled to understand what people mean by profit because uh, ordinary people think of profit as the cash that's left over after you've sold your goods and you've paid all of the expenses but in the property world profit can be quite notional because when you think about it um, if I'm a property owner, I've got I've got two sources of, of value. I've got the income I get from charging rent, and then uh, I've also got the notional increase in value of the property that I own. Um, and it's quite difficult to apply normal uh, profit and loss uh, mechanics to a property business. Let's say I'm a developer. Uh, I don't actually have any rental income because I make my money out of uh, buying some land, building on it, and then selling off the buildings that I've built. And that might mean I've got three or four years of development without any income coming in. Um, and yet I might be a very good business. So how, how do you value uh, what I'm doing? And the answer is you value it in terms of the underlying 
uh, land, the value of the land. Now, in, in the property world, property is very sensitive to interest rates because most developers borrow money in order to buy the land that they then, they then build on. And so the value of the land is quite important in order to, to get the loan in the first place. Now, what's happened recently, and it's a f- reflection of the wider economy, is that property uh, land valuations have been going down because what property companies do, what REITs do is every year they, they get a firm of surveyors to, to value their land. And uh, uh, the surveyors will look at transactions elsewhere and they'll make best guesses at what they think the land is worth. And at the moment, generally speaking, they'll say the land is, is worth less than it used to be because the general economy isn't doing so well. What this means is that some property companies are finding that their their property portfolios have gone down in value. So that hits their profits because they book these notional profits through their profit and loss. So so if the value of the land goes down, it means they've made a loss. But in actual fact, nothing has changed. They still own the same land. And in fact, those uh, property owning businesses which are more landlords than they are developers, their overall profit may have gone down because the land value has gone down, but actually their what's called their rental role, the rent that they are getting from their tenants, is, is looking pretty good. They're still getting the, the, the rents in. So the reason I wanted to just highlight this is because uh, it's really well, well worth understanding the financial underpinning of the property world because it is so important to, to the economy. Uh, most institutional investors have property holdings, but also because I think it's a very good illustration of the, the kind of the, um, the, the slippery definition of the word profit because profit does not always translate into cash that a business can spend. And when you first come across this, uh, it's actually quite a shock. You begin to think, gosh, do I really understand this at all? And, and the answer is, yes, you are understanding it correctly. In that particular world, profit does not necessarily translate directly into cash until, for example, the developer sells off the buildings that they've built. Amazing. But I think a lot of what's going on in the business world is kind of speculation. So obviously, instead of looking at what's happening in the here and now, for instance, let's say with property, it's people speculating, trying to work out what the demand for office space, for instance, or warehouse space will be in 5, 10, 15, even 50 years time. And that forms a lot of the basis of the valuation or valuation today. Um, if people believe that no one's going to be working in an office in 5 to 10 years, which I don't think is the case, but if people did, um, all of a sudden, um, the value of all of this property um, kind of hits not zero, but very close to if, uh, if if they don't believe there's any need for it and businesses and companies would have to use that land um, differently. Chris, the one thing that I wanted to kind of ask about was maybe more so what you can see rather than sort of the underlying plumbing of the, of the, of the property market. Because I think bringing it back to what is real is quite important in in business and ultimately i look out the window of my my office so we we have a liverpool street so fairly close to the to the city of london i see a lot of cranes possibly as many cranes as i did 10 years ago building commercial property space basically big offices everything is suggesting that there's a less need for office space so why are there so many building projects 
going on, do you think, at the moment? Um, and are we at risk of offices and office blocks losing value because we overbuild and we've got more capacity than demand? Well, it, it's a very good question. And, and actually, looking at the number of cranes in central London, there, there is actually a survey. I can't remember whether it's by one of the big four accountancy firms or by a firm of surveyors, but there is a survey called the Crane Survey, mm. which is basically just counting up how many cranes there are and asking, what is this indicative of? And the thing about the property market is that it's very, very cyclical. Um, it's a very boom and bust market. And generally speaking, um, I think the accepted wisdom is that when there's a proliferation of cranes, it's just the wrong time to start building. Because what mm -hmm. happens is developers in a rising market, they, they, they scramble to, to, to get on board. And by the time you've got peak crane, the market mm. has actually turned. But the sort of people who are used to working the property market, they're used to this cyclical boom and bust. So I don't think it, it fusses them, them terribly. Um, and I suppose that leads on to the question of, you know, are we overbuilding office blocks, which goes back to hybrid work and use of offices? And I think what a seasoned property investor would tell you is never bet against long-term trends, because although the short-term trend is more hybrid working, working from home, the long-term trend is that cities are getting bigger. People do need to congregate, and cities are exciting places to be. So if you were to ask me, do I think central city metro property is going to become less valuable or more valuable over time, I would say it's going to become more valuable. That's really interesting um, stuff. And it's always interesting. We don't know exactly what the, uh, what the working world will look like. And there's been very publicly, um, Elon Musk has been um, well tweeting, of course, one story that we have covered in previous episodes, but uh, probably are going to leave uh, for the for the time being, possibly something that we cover in the in the new year after things um, settle down, um, suggesting that everyone at Twitter and obviously Tesla before that will be back in the office. And I think um, there is a uh, mix of opinion and philosophy across some of the sort of famous global CEOs about um, their kind of strategy for office blocks and the sort of future. And I think we are still in a point where people are trying to work out the the best mix um, for, for, for office space. And everyone does see the advantage of um, some office time, but it's how much um, I think is, is, is key. What is interesting is that when you look at big property, institutional property owners, uh, what they are doing is that they are carving up the space they own in radically different ways. So things like hot desking and shared workspaces came in 10, even 15 years ago. But what, what's happening now, and there are structural changes in the market. In the old days, if you were a business you, and you wanted office premises, you had to take out a long lease, you know, 10 to 20 years, possibly even more, with upwards only rent review. So the rent, the rent would be reviewed every, say, five years, but there was a provision in the lease that it could only go upwards. All, all of that is being swept away. So businesses are now insisting on short lets, maximum five years, with break clauses that enable them to get out of the lease at various points during the course of it. So although it's not visible in terms of the buildings that you see, 
the underlying legal basis on which the space is used is changing fundamentally. And, and that is obviously a reflection of the way in which occupiers want to use their space uh, now and in the future. So the second story that we want to cover is around cost of living. And to start with, and I think maybe something that some of you will not necessarily see as positive due to um, your political persuasion and things like that. But I think um, for myself and from an apolitical standpoint, um, there feels a lot of positivity in having a little bit more stability in the government, it feels that there's been a lot more of a measured approach over the last few weeks since uh, Liz Truss um, left Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt um, as Chancellor have have uh, have come in, or well, at least Rishi Sunak has, has come in. And the statistics suggest that the markets have reacted and responded positively to it being a little bit more measured and well thought out. Chris, how important is it to have political stability for the economy? Um, the, the, the answer is it's very important. And you mentioned markets. And one of the things that markets really dislike is uncertainty. They, they like to feel that policymakers are in control and that things aren't going to change too much. And actually, for most of us, political stability means that we can just get on with our lives without thinking about it all the time, because we we're all busy people. We've got other things to worry about than whether the people in charge know what they're doing, you know. And it means we can deal with the, the worries in our lives, like cost of mortgages, or the good things in our lives, like saving money to go on holiday. So political stability is, is really important because it means we can focus on the things that are much more forefront in our lives, I think. And also, I think if there's a, a period of instability, um, the business attitude sometimes, and also the attitude of people, but businesses as well, is a sort of a wait and see. So we'll do the minimum, we'll wait and see if we want to invest in something or we want to make a big move into a new sector. If you feel that the climate in the next year, two years, five years, isn't going to be stable and you're worried about um, decisions being made um, out of your control, you're less likely to um, invest in things. You're less likely to want to expand. And as I say, this kind of wait and see attitude comes. And I think having that stability back um, and the perception of stability as well, it's a psychological um, thing as well, is likely to mean that businesses feel freer to act in a way and they won't it won't come back to bite them in the future you're, you're, you're absolutely right ben because there's quite a lot of um academic economic writing on the cost of uncertainty so what's bad for business is obviously when things are not going well but also the uncertainty between are they going to go well or not in mm. the future that actually itself is a real negative for businesses because instead of investing going ahead and committing capital, they just hold back and wait, which is almost as bad. So at the moment, with the cost of living, the keys for the government, there's two things that are being talked about is helping people in the in the short term get through, especially this, this winter, increase of bills, increase of food prices, but also reducing inflation, which there's a bit of a problem there because potentially one way that you can help people is to put money in their pockets to help them buy food, help them um, pay for their uh, gas, electricity. But obviously, if you put money into the system, that 
is inflationary naturally prices do go up on the flip side if you try and reduce inflation which is basically taking away disposable income which you can do through um, maybe increasing interest rates um, so people are less likely to borrow or you know have more costs associated with their mortgages or loans or money that they've uh, they've borrowed but then obviously that's not helping people through what is quite a challenging time it's a really difficult one for any sort of government or country to get to grips with. But Chris, how do governments balance this? And also, I guess, big business as well. How do they react and respond to what's going on in this situation? Well, you you put your finger, Ben, on the complexity of it, because um, I've heard some commentators say that rising energy prices are, are, are actually a way of, believe it or not, reducing inflation, because if people are spending more of their disposable income, well, not disposable, as it were, on paying for their energy, then it means they've got less money to, to spend elsewhere. But I, I think government's priority is helping people get through the cost of living crisis. And that this is a reflection, and we've talked about this before, but it's a reflection of a change in attitude towards what government is supposed to do. So I, in, in my lifetime, uh, COVID was the first time I can remember government actually stepping in and saying to the population, we are going to help you through this. I can't remember anything being done on, on the same scale. And that has, I think, set up an expectation that government will help when things are bad, which was not not always the case. So I think government feels obliged to step in and help people with energy costs. But there is some good news in this, and that is that uh, the bulk of inflation has been caused by external circumstances, the, the, the war in, in Ukraine, for example. And the expectation is that the impact of that, because Europe has adjusted to sourcing energy from elsewhere, the impact of that is going to be quite short-lived. And I think the, the accepted wisdom is that inflation is probably peaking at the moment. So I think by the time the government has helped people through this winter um, with payments towards energy costs, by around spring, inflation will be coming down and actually coming down pretty quickly. And that's important because if inflation gets baked into the economy and people start to expect it, then they will react by, and it's something that I know we're going to be talking about, wanting higher wages. And this is known in economic circles as second round effect. So it becomes kind of reinforcing if people's expectations of inflation become, become set. Uh, it's exactly what you were saying, Ben, about the psychology of it. There's an awful lot of psychology involved. Mm. And I think, as you say about peak inflation, obviously we don't know, but that's what the um, expectation is. But I think very recently in the last couple of days, um, UK food price inflation hit a new high of uh, just under 12.5% um, for the year, meaning that what would have cost you Last Christmas, one pound will now cost you um, one pound twelve or one pound thirteen, which is absolutely huge. Especially, um, you know, when we started this podcast and did 
the uh, first couple of series, um, the benchmark rate, the rate that the Bank of England were aimed for was 2%. And actually, especially over COVID and just before COVID, it was dipping slightly below that. I think it was at 1% during COVID um, at certain points. Um, so going from sort of that 1%, 2% that we've had for the last three or four years up to uh, 12 13% has been um, a, a major shock. But as Chris sort of talked about, uh, lots to do with uh, what's going on with um external external factors and not something which is a intrinsic problem with the with the um, economy but it does mean businesses have to react to it um chris the last thing i wanted to just cover on on this side of things i spoke a little bit about the the data coming out of uh, uk universities highlighting the challenges with with price rises um a lot of the people listening on the on the on the podcast will be uh, very much acutely aware of all of the challenges that you are currently facing and hopefully everything is um going okay but we've seen data suggesting that um four in five have considered the prospect of dropping out of university uh, in the last year and half of those blame sort of money worries um, and I think 92% of undergrads are concerned about the cost of living. Universities are acting um, in the small ways that they feel they can. I think I saw the University of Manchester offered a £170 one-off payment uh, to to students. And I know lots of other SUs and universities have have have, have done the, the same. Chris, like my feeling, and I know it's a, a bad time over this winter for a lot of people, but my feeling is that if education is impacted at this time and people are potentially seen dropping out or not being able to bring their full self into um, education because they have to go and work potentially around their studies or they're not getting, you know, adequate nutrition or, you know, they're cold in their house. It's got to have an impact on the on the wider economy and the economy of the future, especially with all these young young people coming out of university. That's absolutely right, because um, one of the things that we've heard politicians talking about recently is the, the, the need for growth, the need for improved productivity. It's, it's something that we've, we've talked about ourselves, Ben. And um, quite rightly, what they're saying is um, the economy's future growth depends on education, on having a skilled workforce. And frankly, if you make it harder for people to study or to complete their studies, because they're cold or because they haven't got enough to eat, then it's going to have a direct impact, I feel, on, on future economic growth. Absolutely. So I think this is a really important issue for the country. 100%. And also, like, you know, there's lots of students and there was a few interviews on BBC uh, News, you might have caught them from from students, um, suggesting that they're already heading off for for home to, to be warm and doing the last couple of weeks of their lectures, if they can, remotely and i think um it's, it's sad things to to hear and hopefully as saying that in the new year um inflation comes down a little bit and we can get back to some form of normality because i uh, appreciate that with uh with with money problems you know they've come synonymous everyone sort of say our oh, students you know never have full enough money but you know actually um what was said as sort of a, a, a tongue in tongue in cheek um thing at times in in the past is becoming a, a very much a reality for for a lot of students uh, but i think we'll leave that there for for this week um wanted to cover it um and wanted to add some of the kind of business angle um towards it um as well so i was reading an article the uh, the other day talking about um the striking 
um, that has been going on, the widespread striking across a number of different industries, both public and uh, private sector um, as well, but mainly obviously public sector. But the headline was, is this the new winter of discontent? And that harks back to the winter of uh, 1978 and 79 in the, in the, in the UK where sort of mass strike action, um, I think, James Callaghan was was prime minister, but then in um, 1979 would be uh, replaced by Margaret Thatcher's conservative um, government. And um, I imagine most people listening to the podcast wouldn't have been uh, born. They may have seen some of the imagery from the the strikes. There was many clashes with uh, with police, especially in um, some of the sort of mining towns and uh, industrial towns uh, in the northern Midlands of um, England. But reading today, it's the 1st of December, the Daily Telegraph uh, headline was strikes every day until Christmas. Um, Chris, we touched on this earlier in the episode, but it would be really good to understand or give our listeners an understanding of why there are so many strikes um, at the moment. And I know it's it, it feels quite depressing to be faced with so many but actually, I think the the what's happening uh, kind of behind the headlines is a bit more uh, nuanced than that. So I think some strikes are opportunistic. You know, let's get a wage rise while inflation is high. But actually, a lot of them are because people simply can't afford these higher prices. And then some of them are, are structural. And, and I think this is true of the nurses, for example, because nurses... It takes a lot to make the nurses to go on strike. And what they faced is, is chronic low pay for a long, long time, which finally has just become completely unsupportable. Some strikes are about working conditions. And, and here I, I, I think of the nurses again. You, you know, they, they just need improved conditions. They, they, they need more of them to do the work. And then some are actually just about entrenched working practices um, and the employers there are taking quite a hard line because they need the way in which the work is being done to change, to free up money in order to pay the, um, the, 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 the rise that those particular employees want. So I think when you, when you look behind these individual strikes at the reasons why, I think they're, they're, they're quite various, really. Mm. And a lot of the industries you spoke about and a lot of the strikes kind of happen in the in the public sector. I think when you think about strikes, you think of the public public sector, whereas actually technically it isn't always the, the case. Um, but what is the impact on private business from these kind of public sector strikes? Well, it, it's quite great because um, although you say, you know, with the train strikes, it's difficult for employees to get to work. It really is very difficult for employees to get to work. And then with what's happening in, in um, the health service, it's more difficult for employees to stay healthy. Um, as a lot of a lot of our listeners know, with with uh, um, university teachers going on on strike, uh, students being taught, affecting future growth. So, uh, although a lot of these strikes are in the public sector, they they um, read across directly to the private sector, and they do have a very direct bearing on on business. And I think the one thing that makes me think is when I look at sort of the strike action of when maybe I first moved into London about um, a decade ago, 
um, especially let's look at rail strikes or other types of strikes, a lot of them were very much one, maybe two days on this. And maybe a, a deal was done, um, especially on the trains where 10 years ago, everyone was going into the office. Very few people were working remotely and therefore doing a day of train slash tube strikes basically ground cities to to a halt and then came back to the negotiating table. Whereas it just seems it's more of a, a battle of attrition with a lot of these industries this time. Is that a reflection on the deep uh, dissatisfaction that people are feeling, uh, people in certain industries? Or is that just the nature of how things work nowadays and the possibly the inability for the government or or employers to to give any more than the X percent wage rise that, that, that they can? Well, I, I think it's quite interesting because for a long time, unions have been in decline. Over the last 20, 30 odd years, as workforces have become, uh, as they've professionalized, in a sense that the need to have union representation ha- has itself decline because the economy's been doing well, employers have been passing on uh, uh, regular wage rises, inflation hasn't been rampant. And I think what's kind of made it uh, much more obvious at the moment is that, yes, on the one hand, people really are struggling. But on the other hand, unions that have lost a lot of ground historically can see this as a chance to recover that lost ground. And I don't mean that in uh, any particularly political way, because actually having a unionized workforce has many, many advantages to it. I mean, one mustn't forget the fact that the unions historically uh, grew in a period when workers were, were very poorly treated and they had no way of making their views felt to the management. And in a country like Germany, for example, which is highly unionized, uh, unions have have seats on company boards. That's written into the legislation. So I I, I don't see this as an instance of, of, you know, union bashing. I think actually it's a chance to stand back and say, you know, it is important, even in these modern times, that workforces have representation um, so I, I see it in a fairly balanced way, really. So to give a bit of kind of context um, behind it or something from maybe my my thoughts and Chris, I'd be interested to see your, your kind of thoughts on it, is that up until the first Labour government under Tony Blair in, in 97, there wasn't really this idea of a, of a minimum wage. And workers, and especially in sort of retail industries, hospitality and retail, were you look back and even factoring in inflation were chronically under underpaid and i remember it because you know at the the, the first kind of minimum wages were quite low especially for under 18s and under 21s and you know that was the time when i was uh, a sort of a teenager and getting our me and my friends getting our first jobs and hearing some of the sort of wages and you know, some people, I think like three or four pounds a, a, an hour, which, as I say, prices have gone up. But that, you know, if you factor in inflation, that is still too low to be paying anyone. And I think there is something sort of positive. And as it's developed and gone over time, there's been kind of a national consensus on paying um, a fair wage, regardless of the of of the profession. And that is 
in itself inflationary. So people do have to pay a little bit more to go to restaurants because the chefs and the waiting staff are getting paid that little bit more and um, shops um, as well. But I think it's binding kind of a nation together, I feel, a little bit more. And actually, one way of doing that, and I think we've seen that inequality uh, has, uh, has widened, is actually continuing to drive forward on having a uh, a strong minimum wage for 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 people and you know some business owners will sit there and go oh that will that will destroy me that will ruin me um but maybe it's a case of businesses being able to think of how they can service their clients even with a greater wage bill and that being the problem they're trying to solve not the problem of how um can i make my products as cheap as possible for my consumers what are your thoughts um, I, I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's this idea of a national consensus on everyone being treated more fairly. Mm. Uh, you're absolutely right to say that what we've seen over the last 10 years is a polarization in terms of, of the, the, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And that is not good. Mm. Uh, that's a bad thing. But the good thing is that there is general recognition that the services that that we're provided with and we depend on are valuable and the people who provide them should be treated accordingly as being valuable people. And I think that's really important. And that is a big change over you. You were uh, referring to 78, 79 and, um, and, you know, are there any parallels with 78, 79? Well, I, I was there, I was 20 in mm-hmm. 78 and the seventies were completely different I mean, those strikes were about vast industries such as coal, rail, mm. car making, shipbuilding, which were an absolute structural decline. The, the country was completely on its uppers. And if those very large industries were simply not making money because they were no longer competitive internationally, how could you pay people? And so actually what I think that was about was about the realization that the whole economy had to change and pivot. And it's pivoted towards being a more service-based economy uh, where where we provide uh, um, services that that are higher value add. So that's why I think that was a real structural confrontation, whereas I see this quite differently. Mm. And I think there is this idea as well that in the past, I think capitalism was viewed as basically being how many noughts can you add to the end of your profit at the at the end of the year but there's this idea that you can do business and also do good you can be very profitable but also have a good business culture for your employees um as well as also um being a philanthropist and giving out to more broadly to young people and everything like that. Chris, over to you. Well, one one term that was not used uh, back in 78-79 is the term stakeholder. Mm. This idea that um, uh, a business has a responsibility to a lot of different communities. Yes, yes, obviously the customers, but also their workforce, their, their local community as well. And I think that emphasis on, on stakeholder, going back to what you were saying about supermarkets, being very careful not just to blithely pass on costs. This comes back in marketing terms, which you'll be more familiar with than, than, than me, Ben, that this idea of the, the, the customer lifetime value, that you look at your customer base, not in a transactional sense of, of, you know, how often does this customer come to my store a week, 
but more in terms of over their lifetime, how, how often will this customer come to my store? What business will they give me? They are stakeholders that I need to look after. I need to make sure that I'm not charging so much that they either go away or, 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 or just can't afford to come back. And I think there's been a massive change in the way businesses um, look at their stakeholders and, and look at the, the, the world at large, including obviously um, the ESG, the environmental, social and governmental issues as well. And that's been a massive change over the last 30 mm. years. And that's not going to be walked back. That's not going to go away. And actually, I, th- I think that's, uh, that's a way that social media has benefited um, society. Like, uh, you know, there are definitely problems with, with, with social media. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm the first to, to talk about them. But actually, um, it does provide sometimes false information, but it also opens up things that, that happen, like sort of the profits of big multinational companies and potentially where they're maybe not paying tax or, uh, or, or enough tax. Those sort of stories get more publicity because they go around social media. They reach different audiences. You don't have to be a newspaper reader. You don't have to be spread out your sort of financial times or your telegraph on the on the morning commute and annoying everyone around you in your suit or whatever it might be. You, you can consume. And yes, there is a problem with fake news and that isn't good. But actually, news stories and things like that um, and the perception on social media is so important to companies. Um, actually, it's kind of opened the door to to them possibly being a little bit more transparent and also think a little bit wider about their stakeholder and their reputation as well. The final fun story of the week um, is going to be about football. Um, but we're not going to tell you that it's coming home. The one thing that I wanted to talk about was owning a football club. A lot has been talked about it lately because both Manchester United and Liverpool are up for sale. So two of the biggest assets in, in football, two of the, the biggest clubs. Um, and actually, um, if you look at the what's typically described as the big six teams, um, Chelsea also got um, sold recently as well. Um, very different um, way because it was Roman Abramovich and his ties with uh, with Putin. Um, and also just off the what's considered the top six, and I don't want any Newcastle fans to uh, start uh, start messaging me or emailing me saying that I'm being disrespectful because I know they're in the uh, top four at the moment, but um, but maybe the traditionally uh, top six. They've also been bought um, by a consortium from from Saudi Arabia as well. 20 years ago when when I was sort of growing up it felt like that money was coming into football but no one really was going to make any money off it um it was very much more kind of people wanted to own football clubs from the teams that they supported or they were happy just to bankroll because it was a fun exciting thing they could have their box up there and watch the games and uh, uh, gain some notoriety but my sense is with these two transactions that it's become just massive business. Um, does it make business sense to own a football club or are you doing it as a vanity project? Well, I, I, I hate to disappoint you, Ben, but I, I'm not sure that football clubs are really businesses even now because um, the, the way the tax inspector defines a business is an activity with a view to making a profit. And I'm not sure that football clubs do that. Um, most of their income, their TV income, gets paid out to their players their, their so-called assets, the players, are actually 
liabilities because they owe them so much money. And the most interesting thing is that a football club's biggest asset is its stadium. And actually, on average, that gets used twice a month because if you're playing, let's say, once a week, you've got a home match and away match, a home match and away match. That's the month over. Only two days out of that month is your biggest asset being used, which is why uh, modern football stadia are built with conference centers and hotels attached because they know they've got to make much more use out of this very expensive asset. And, and the final thing that makes football as a business quite peculiar is that, and we talked about stakeholders, but the biggest stakeholders are, are the fans, mm. and they have absolutely no say in the way the business is run. So my, my conclusion looking at this is that football isn't so much a business that you make money out of while you own the football club. It's only a business when it comes to selling it. Mm. And the old adage is the value of something is whatever somebody else is prepared to pay you for it. And because football has this, this glamour, this glitter to it, and, and because football clubs don't come on the market that often, the people selling them think they can make a lot of money. So I think it's quite interesting that the Glazers bought Man United for, it's quite difficult to work out what the actual base cost was, but I think the best estimate is around 800 million. And they've reportedly recently been wanting 10 times that. Mm. Um, and it's questionable whether they will get that. So I think, I think football clubs only make sense as a business, frankly, <laughs> When you're when you're selling them, when you're getting out of the business of football, yeah, the same is is true for Liverpool as as well. I think it was bought for somewhere just under um, half a billion, um, and now they're looking for somewhere between two point five and four billion um, when they sell it on. And you're right, like the sheer amount of money that they are shedding over a, a period of time. And don't get me wrong, the TV deals are massive um, as as well. And they have a global um, audience. It's not just the deals they do with Sky Sports or BT Sports in the UK. They're doing these across the world. Premier League football is one of our big exports. You know, people across the world know about it, support teams from Manchester, London, um, maybe less so from some of the less desirable uh, places like Wickham Wanderers that I, uh, I'm a support of, um, which actually is quite an interesting point because up until about two or three years ago, we were fans owned. So you talk a little bit about uh, the fans have very little say in it. Only one or two professional football clubs are, are what's described as fans owned and they just don't work. The money needed to bankroll clubs and you're talking a little bit about they're not making profit. You look at the the profitability of lower league clubs and you think, this is absolutely madness. This actually isn't really business. And a lot has been talked about with the global stage of, of football and, you know, the organisation running at FIFA and you can watch the Netflix series and things like that and everything that's been said about the the World Cup. And to be honest with you, a lot of it is, is really poor and really um, shocking of how it's, how it's been run. But you see the money in football and you can understand why people sort of view it as like this big business and people are making a fortune out of it but you do feel that probably the fans are the ones losing out because ticket prices go up despite the fact that you know the ticket income may be for a season tens of millions which to be honest with you is going on one player 
for instance and i think um in germany they 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 got it got it right i think uh bayern uh, munich a few years back and i don't know if it's the same now um their season tickets were sort of i don't know 20 30% what it would cost at arsenal or man united very much um lower um and the i think it's the chief finance officer or the director said well if we put doubled the price we would receive another five to 10 million. And that is the cost of a a very cheap player nowadays, or even a negotiation that would take, you know, half an hour to do on a very expensive player. And you sort of think about it in, in those terms. And you think about the sheer scale of, uh, of the money they're paying out. Yes. Like they are massive assets because they have everything attached to them. They're not just a business you look at and go, right, here's the sum of its parts. There is that passion involved, which, um, which, uh, as you say, people might be willing to pay that little bit more for to, to own Liverpool, to own Man United, Chelsea, Newcastle, who, whoever it, it, it might be. Um, but yeah, as I say, it kind of, it's kind of a strange thing where you see football, there's a huge business around it, but it doesn't seem to make sense. I would say, what, what, what do you think? Well, it's interesting about, um, what you're saying, Ben, about, uh, charging the fans, because mm. if you make the tickets too expensive, the stadium won't be full. And mm. then the television companies won't like that because it won't look terribly well attended. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure whether this is the case, but I have a feeling that in Germany, the bulk of football clubs are part owned by the local community. Mm. So there is an idea that the football club is part of the community, is part owned by the local community, and and is financed accordingly on a on a more long term sustainable business. Um, but what you're saying about small football clubs is absolutely right. They can really only survive. Um, if if they've got a, a a local benefactor, usually a, a wealthy local business person um, who grew up supporting the club and, and puts money into it, um, and the, the 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 so-called trickle down effect of money from the big clubs coming down to the small clubs, I don't really see much evidence of that. And yet the big clubs, I think, do depend on smaller clubs to provide at least some of the talent that in in the end they 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 do buy. Um, there, there was a, a, a vogue in, in the past for buying small football clubs, which tended to be run in the past quite uh, economically and, mm. and um, very much trying to avoid losses. So football clubs that didn't have much debt were often bought, um, loaded up with debt on the security of the ground, uh, big dividends paid out to the new owners from the loans that were taken out. The ground then being transferred to the new owner, meaning that the club was now heavily in debt with no assets. And then the owner magnanimously giving the club, now saddled with debt, to a fan's trust for a nominal pound to then take on this thing and try to try to make it viable. So I, I can remember one or two football clubs suffered from from that trend. Amazing. Chris, I think we're going to leave it there um, for this week. It's been super interesting. Hope you found it um, interesting um, listening um, at home. And as I say, if Thinking Commercially has been one of your top listened to um, podcasts of this year, do get in touch. And of course, have a fantastic Christmas. And we'll be back next year with more podcasts on business. 
Well, that is it for 2022 for the Thinking Commercially podcast. From both me and Chris, we are delighted that so many people have got involved. So many people have listened to the podcast this year. We hope you continue to find it interesting, exciting, and you keep developing your knowledge. Um, If you've got any feedback for us or any questions or any thoughts, please do email in. It's ben at brightnetwork.co.uk. And I look forward to hearing from you and we'll be back in the next year with more Thinking Commercially. Commercially.